Well, uh, Jimmy just beat me to it. I, I think Martin Luther did roll over in his grave. Um, um, but, you know, I don't know if you know this story or not, uh, but uh, I think it's pretty common knowledge in evangelical circles that, you know, people uh, made such a to-do in, when it came to, um, to new music in the church. And when Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he did indeed write the lyrics. But the tune that we sing... I think my facts are straight here. Um, he borrowed from the beer hall. And it was scandalous, the fact that Martin Luther had taken a song, a, a tune that was sung, you know, while people were, you know, with their steins of beer um, in Germany and um, put it to these rich lyrics that we've all come to love. So, um, you know, uh, there's the scandal. Uh, this is uh, uh, no scandal at all. But anyway, just it's, it's interesting how things get out of perspective and, and history uh, refocuses them for us. Guys, um, tonight I think we can kind of wrap up what we've been doing all winter and spring, although there is one more little um, addition uh, for next week that, that really is, is related to this, but... but really only tangentially related, because it really takes us back to Mark chapter 7, and we'll wrap up next week. But this, this really wraps up the discussion of legalism, antinomianism, grace, etc. We'll do that tonight. But just for the sake of, um, uh, of making sure that everybody uh, is still with me and I haven't lost you, let me do this real quick. We tried to... Um, we tried to... Um, Point out the errors of legalism. We tried to point out the errors of antinomianism. And then we said, uh, what you don't want to do is take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and try to balance these two. And remember, we talked about thesis, uh, antithesis, and then a, a synthesis. And I said, that's not what you're trying to do. Um, that we're not trying to balance these or merge these in any way. And this is, this is what we want to aim at. Uh, no, 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 that's, that's the thing that we wanted to avoid. We wanted to come up with an entirely different third option. Because once you, once you merge that which is born of flesh with something else which is born of flesh, you just end up with something else born of flesh. The third option is, of course, what we've called grace. And what I've been trying to do for the last two or three weeks is just define grace, what that looks like. And I told you that I did not have a definition for you, that I had a description for you. Um, I, I will say, that's a little overstated, because I did offer this. If I were going to give you a definition of grace, it wouldn't be one of those nice little acrostics, uh, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, um, my definition of grace would be, that is a life of grace, a life lived in grace by a believer, it would be that sentence that I've used so many times, emulating Christ in the power of the Spirit. Um, that, that would be what I would say summarizes what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And that, that Christian life is a life of grace. It would look like this. We would be emulating Christ in the power of the spirit. Now, then what I did is I, I took you, I mean, I gave you that, that emulating Christ thing. And then I took you to a passage, um, Colossians one, uh, nine through 12 saying to you, that one of the places in the New Testament that really kind of um, summarized this sentence that I just gave you, gave you was this text. And that's what we've done for two or three weeks. Looked at Colossians chapter 1. 
And I, I tried to break down Colossians chapter 1 into its major component parts, uh, that is 9 through 12, and I gave you four component parts of this text. I said there was a right uh, mind, a right walk, um, fruit-bearing, um, and then uh, all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that those four component parts uh, summarizes this text, and this text summarizes my definition of grace, which is emulating Christ in the power of the Spirit, which is the third option. <laughs> That's sequential, isn't it? I mean, that flows uh, logically, I hope. This is what grace is. There's a definition. Here's a text that illustrates, and here's the four component parts of that. So, you want to uh, live not as legalists or antinomians, then this is the way that we would be living, with a right mind, a right walk, bearing fruit in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we did uh, last week, we got, we got to this point, we got to fruit bearing, but because of the limitations of time, I didn't say a couple of things that I wanted to. So let me, let me kind of clean that up, and then we'll go to the last part of this whole definition, which is uh, the Holy Spirit's role. Um... Um, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of fruit bearing, that is, if, if, if my mind has been saturated by the truths contained in the scriptures that is led to a walk worthy of Christ, that's what the text says, um, then fruit will be born. And I, the, 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 the first thing I would like to say tonight that I didn't get to say last week is that fruit is inevitable. Um... Anybody who belongs to Jesus Christ bears fruit. I, I would suggest that that is uh, the, the very clear statement that Jesus makes in Matthew seven seventeen when he says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit. <laughs> Truth, I mean, um, fruit is inevitable. When my heart gets changed... I will bear... Now, I can't tell you the quantities. I can't tell you what they would look like, etc., etc. But I can tell you this. Fruit bearing on the part of the Christian is an inevitability. Um, you know, one of the, the, the kind of the discussions that I think Christians get into, and I wish we could stay out of this one. It's really, it's really you know, um, we all want to avoid that being judgmental, you know. And people say, well, I'm not judgmental, but I am a fruit inspector. You know, uh, by their fruits ye shall know them, but I am a fruit inspector. You know, guys, um, you want to inspect some fruit, inspect your own. Because I'm telling you, um, if I could give you an example, let's just take my dear wife. You know, for my wife to be humble, it's, it's easy for her. <laughs> I mean, she's just kind of a soft-spoken, um, demure, um, perfect senior pastor's wife. So for her to be humble, you know, pff, piece of cake. For me, <laughs> the loud, obnoxious one, guys... If you got 15 seconds of humility out of me, 
it would be better than three hours of humility out of her. Because it comes easier to her. What I'm saying is, it's hard for you to inspect that. It's hard for you to draw a conclusion about that when you don't know the inner devils that I'm battling to come up with my 15 seconds worth. So just stay out of it. If you want to investigate somebody's fruit that is inevitable, inspect your own. Okay? That's the first thing. But it is, it is an inevitability, if, if I belong to Jesus Christ, that something, something that looks like God begins to form in me. Now, that's the, which brings me to the second part. That fruit that is inevitable is visible, it is quantifiable, it is objective. Now, that's all really under one major heading. I, I, I mention that because when, you remember the parable of the four soils? And the, the, so, the, the seed falls on a certain ground. And, and Jesus says, and, and some brought forth 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold. You know why he could say that, ladies and gentlemen? Because fruit is visible. It is quantifiable. It is objective. It is something that can be seen. So the the fruit bearing that comes from a life of grace that is inevitable is visible, ladies and gentlemen. It's quantifiable. You know, very frankly, some of you have a whole lot more of it than others of you. Or some of you have a whole lot more of it than others of us. Because some soils bring forth 30-fold and some 60 and some 100. Jesus said that. Um, because fruit is a, is a natural... Pro- By the way, the, the, the passage in John 15 about the vine and the vine dresser, and, and, and the, Jesus says, every, four, every, vine that bring, every um, uh, branch that brings forth fruit gets pruned. Well, now that's not a happy thought, because pruning has to do with something painful. But it's pruned so that it can bear more of that fruit. More of that stuff that comes because I'm abiding in Jesus Christ. Fruit, ladies and gentlemen, is observable. It's quantifiable. It's visible. Christians ought to look different than non-Christians. We just look different. Or supposed to, I mean, we do look different in terms of physical features. But, but I'm telling you, there should be a behavior that becomes us that is ours because we belong to this Savior of ours. Okay, um, that's enough said in terms of a right amount of right, uh, fruit bearing. But it does bring me to my third point. If it is inevitable and invisible and justifiable and objective, it is also impossible. It is impossible outside of the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. Guys, um, just to make a point, you know, just to give you something to underline that you haven't underlined before, maybe you have, turn with me to John 15. That's that, that vine passage 
Um, in verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There it is, inevitable. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I forget which commentator it was, but um, he said, nothing doesn't mean a little something. Did you get that? That's kind of witty. When Jesus says you can do nothing, that doesn't mean, well, but you can do a little something. No, no. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says in another place in John chapter 6, he says, the flesh profits nothing. Now, now gang, uh, let me make clear as to what is being meant. Um. You and I can produce moral behaviors. Uh, we, can, we can produce moral behaviors without him. I mean, we can stay away from those bad movies. We can do that completely unassisted. It's pure moralism. It's nothing spiritual to it. But we can produce that. But something that is a fruit of the Spirit, you can produce nothing. Nothing. You know, guys, uh, in my world, um, when we were graduating from seminary, I took a class, and Susie will remember, it was taught by Guy Miller. And um, it it was a study of the Crystal Cathedral. Bob Schuler in the Crystal Cathedral. Y'all, y'all, y'all remember that? Bob Schuler in the Crystal Cathedral. And, 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 and uh, Guy Miller taught, and we exposed this to all these things, these, these church growth strategies. And I'm telling you, it, it, it poisoned me. By the way, do you know where the Crystal Cathedral is now? Sold to a hospital or something. I, I, I don't know what it was. But guys, my point is, all of this strategizing, you know, I heard a series of tapes some one time, and it talked about, the preacher whose name you'd recognize talked about, they had brought in a team of experts from Hollywood, because they wanted the experts from Hollywood to tell them how to conduct their worship services. And the team from Hollywood told them that in filmmaking... Now, I might have my details wrong just a little bit, but they said that you've got to have a, a, an emotional spike every seven minutes. It could be 11 minutes, I forget, but we'll just call it. You've got to have an emotional spike every seven minutes so that you can keep your audience. If you're going to make a, you know, a blockbuster movie, you've got to plan it out so that, such that every seven minutes something happens that, you know, kind of, you know, kind of jars people. And so this preacher was saying in our worship service, what we do is that we plan things so that there's some kind of emotional jar every seven minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, in our worship services, they're in the jar the whole time, you know. It's just all boring. (laughs) Just flat out boring. But ladies and gentlemen, do you see how ugly that is? Apart from me, 
You can do nothing. Oh, you got your seven-minute spike all planned up. It's, it's just flesh, ladies and gentlemen. Flesh. In all of its ugliness. The walk that you and I are supposed to be walking is called the walk of the Spirit. I, I, I want you to see that. Uh, go to Galatians chapter 5 with me. And um, feast your eyes on this statement about the Apostle Paul. Um, it's right after um, he's mentioned all the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and following. He says in verse 25, this is Galatians 5.25, he says, If we live by the Spirit... Now, guys, everybody know what that means? You know that you came to life by the power of the Holy Spirit in an act called regeneration. You know that, don't you? You know that great uh, uh, image in Ezekiel 36 about exchanging a heart of stone with a heart of flesh? That is, that God takes this stony heart and he rips that thing out and he replaces it with the heart of flesh. Guys, that's just a, that's just a biblical picture of an event known as regeneration or the rebirth or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But ladies and gentlemen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God, monergistically, brought you to life. So he says, if we live by the Spirit, that is, if we have been brought to life by this regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, then, I just inserted that word, let us also walk. By the Spirit. You can do nothing. Unless this walk of yours is generated and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit that is a part of the Christian's life. Um, guys, um, one of the things that the New Testament does do, particularly um, the, the, the closing chapters of the Gospel of John and then, of course, the, the epistles of Paul and Peter, is, is places an emphasis upon the centrality and the role of the Holy Spirit's work. Have you ever seen that statement in John sixteen seven? And, you know, Jesus is about these hours before he's arrested, and he says, he says something really stupid like this. He says, it is to your advantage that I go. What? We're having a ball here. I mean, we're seeing people raised from the dead. We're, you know, you're walking on water every now and then and, you know, just feeding the flocks. And, I mean, the blind see. And, you know, I, don't leave. And Jesus himself says, it is to your advantage that I go, and you know why he says that. I'll read you the rest of it. It is to your advantage that I go, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. You and I are advantaged. 
Haven't you ever heard somebody say, oh, I'd, I'd love to walk, you know, in the back in Palestine with Jesus. I'd like to just see him do some of those things, you know, that he did, and, you know, break that bread and feed 5,000. I would have just liked to walk. And then I'd really be committed. Jesus says, you know what? You, my brother and sister in Christ, are advantaged because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So, guys, the New Testament places a focus on the centrality of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Which means a couple of things, I think. It means a a conscious, growing, deepening dependence on the Holy Spirit of God. It also means, and this is where we struggle, guys, um, all of us, it, it also means a more determination, more of a determination to yield. A yieldedness to the program of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, confidence in self, high opinions of my abilities, independence, disobedience, are all opposites of a life lived in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are known as one who is very confident in his own abilities, well, that might get you a promotion in the corporate world, but in terms of the kingdom of God, it pretty much zeroes you. Um, all that stuff is supposed to go, you know, we... Um, I don't think we sing this song here. You know, I was raised in the church. I was raised in a Methodist church all, most of my life until I found out they didn't believe the Bible. And, and um, then I thought maybe I ought to find another place, you know. Uh, um, but uh, there was a song that we used to sing, and, and, um, and uh, it goes like, it was a sweet song. Um, and I, I, I think I could sing the whole thing for it. At least one stanza. And it went like this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Y'all sing that song. Ah, you are, you are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Well, we've got a new version of that one. It's now sung something like this. I'll have my own way, Lord. I'll have my own way. I'll be the potter, and you'll be the clay. I'll mold you and make you after my will. While you are waiting... Yielded and still. 
That's got to go, ladies and gentlemen. It's all ugly. It's all godless, and it's all, it's all a bunch of church. My wife's here. <laughs> church bad stuff. <laughs> It's just ugly, ladies and gentlemen, and let's get a spike every seven minutes and, uh, you know, make sure that... I told you my, my, my favorite story. I mean, I tell this in my systematics all the time, where my daughter was in a class one time uh, when she was in high school where she was taught by a visiting preacher that they were trying to control the aromas that were pumped into the, uh, the uh, air conditioning system because it... It made conversion more likely. I, I, I very cattily have wondered what conversion smells like. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, guys, that's all just, it's just all stuff that just has no place. Now, guys, let, let me hurry here because... Here's what I think walking in the Spirit means practically. I think, first of all, it means prayer. Gang, if we believe that apart from Him we can do nothing, then we don't operate as if we are in control. We don't operate like that. Um... I talk about yieldedness, and the opposite of that is I'm in control. And what prayer does, it says, unless you do something, unless the Lord builds the house, we who build. I'm not just talking about the church. I'm just talking about living obediently for Jesus Christ. You know, guys, um, I'm not in charge of that. So it means prayer. And and I am... Um, I don't think I'm the only one in this room that would say, you know, the thing that really, that really needs to improve about my spiritual life is my prayer life. Well, you know what that says. It says that we don't believe that apart from him we can do nothing. It, it says that we believe that apart from him we can do a little something. So it means prayer. And I'll, and I'll show you a second thing that it means, but it's really connected to the first. And I would love for you to see this, guys. So if you've still got your Bibles around, turn to, to Luke chapter 11. And this is something that I pray probably five times a week. Um, because it's a promise. Um, Luke chapter 11. Um, it's in verse 13, where Jesus says, uh, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Pray that, my brother and sister in Christ. Pray it often. Pray it a lot. Now, gang, I, I described for you a moment ago what is known Theologically, is regeneration. It also comes runs under the name of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, rebirth. They're all synonyms, okay? But the baptism of the Spirit occurs once. Regeneration occurs once. That's when we're brought to life. 
But this other thing, this, he doesn't use the word here, but I will, this filling of the Holy Spirit, that happens over and over and over again. I could, if we had time, I would take you through the book of Acts and I could show you at least three times where the text says that Peter was filled. Next day, Peter was filled. Next event, Peter was filled. So, if that is true, ladies and gentlemen, then pray that. Pray that a lot. Pray Luke 11. Memorize it. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your Father, how much more the Father gives the Holy Spirit to them who ask. Pray it a lot. Just pray it all the time. Um, And then finally, guys, I think one of the things that would help this walk in the Spirit is a discovery of of your spiritual gifts and how to use them. Because those gifts that you have are called gifts of the Spirit. You do know, don't you, ladies and gentlemen, that the Spirit of God entrusted you something. Now, it's somewhat atrophied in us. And we've got a whole lot of frozen assets, uh, people with spiritual gifts, spirit gifts that the Spirit gave to them that are not being used and employed. So another, a third thing that you might want to do, what, at least what that means, is discover your spiritual gift and find a place to use it. Now, let me, let me close by working us backwards through this whole thing. Um, bearing fruit, inevitable, is descriptive of a life that is worthy of Christ. It's descriptive of a life that pleases God. A life that bears fruit does so because fruit bearing is evidence of a life that is worthy of Christ. And that, why, that walk is taking place because my mind has been saturated, marinated in the truths and the precepts and the rules and the, the delights and the hatreds of God as found in his word. So, a life that bears fruit is, is a life that is worthy of the gospel, one that comes because of a mind trained by the scriptures, and none of that will happen unless empowered and aided by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, that's the life we're after. It's, a, it's the third option. This is the life of grace. Not that. Not that. This. You think about that. Let's quit. Heavenly Father, uh, we commit ourselves to that. Forgive us that um, we have leaned for too long and in too many ways on the arm of the flesh, thinking that our abilities could uh, slide us through, uh, could accomplish something that lasts, and um, we end up with a crystal cathedral. And so, Father, um, not wanting you to 
blight us like that. Not wanting the name Ichabod written on who we are as a church and who we are as individual believers. We come to ask you, because you've promised that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more you will give the Holy Spirit to them who ask. And so as a body of believers, we acknowledge that apart from you we can do nothing, and we ask you, we ask you to grant us the filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling so that we can be biblical husbands and biblical wives. Filling so that we can have some measure of wisdom to parent our children. Filling so that we can be useful to you in the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. Filling so that our, our, um, our decisions and our choices will be wise ones. Filling so that we can see the kingdom of God expanded even in our little spheres of influence. We recognize and fully, fully agree that apart from you, we can do nothing. We commit ourselves to this, Father, knowing that there will be slips and faults, and yet none of those things remove us from your family. We thank you for grace that saved us and grace that now empowers us to walk by the Spirit. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.